Disc 7 We do not know all the details for the very good reason that Eden insisted no notes were taken at the key Cabinet Committee discussions. He even insisted that private diaries of the time, including Macmillan's, be torn up or burned. But the Israelis approached the French, who revived the idea. Israel was being harassed on her borders by guerrillas. The French, fighting a vicious colonial war in Algeria, thought Nasser was a menace to their interests there as well as in the canal. The specific plot for an Israeli attack to be followed by an Anglo-French demand for a ceasefire, which would be refused and then followed by a police action intervention, was dreamed up by the French war hero, General Maurice Chal. So cloak-and-dagger discussions began. The place at which the details were hammered out was a modest borrowed villa at Sèvres, outside Paris, a house that had once been a French resistance hideout. Eden's foreign secretary, Selwyn Lloyd, attended, reluctantly, having tried to disguise himself by wearing a battered old raincoat as he left London. It did not work. There he met his French opposite number, the Israeli Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, the country's chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, and Shimon Peres from the Israeli Defence Ministry. It was not an easy meeting. Britain had a close defence agreement with Jordan, another enemy of Israel at the time, and it was not so long since Israeli terrorists had been killing British soldiers. For their part, the Israelis deeply mistrusted the British. The French were also suspicious after Britain's decision a year earlier to shun the new common market. Finally, the deep secrecy of the meetings created its own layer of mistrust, particularly since Eden was obsessive about nothing being written down. Eventually, the outline agreement was written down, at the Israelis' insistence, and initialed by a British negotiator. At the Sèvres house, with the help of local fish and wine, a deal was finally done. Those present solemnly swore not to reveal the details during their lifetimes, and for good reason. The agreement to ensure that French paratroops from Algeria and a British invasion force from Malta and Cyprus could attack, theoretically to separate the two sides, but in fact to grab back control of the canal, was wholly illegal. It required that ambassadors, other ministers, the head of MI6 and the Commons, as well as the White House, must all be kept in ignorance. That, at least, was done highly successfully. Despite leaks from Paris to the CIA, President Eisenhower never guessed what was happening until it was too late. Meanwhile, the mood in Britain had changed. Anti-colonialism, the international rule of law and the rights of young countries were all issues which enthused Labour and the left generally. The United Nations, NATO and the European Convention on Human Rights still smelled of fresh paint. As American hostility to military action became clearer, some MPs and commentators began to have second thoughts. Eden, rather like Thatcher and Blair later, complained that left-wing intellectuals were stirring things up against him, while the BBC is exasperating me by leaning over backwards to be what they call neutral and to present both sides of the case. There was nothing quite like the drama of the Hutton Inquiry and the resignation of the BBC's Chairman and Director-General in 2004, yet at a fundamental level the earlier clash went further. Eden made menacing noises about taking the BBC under direct government control. According to BBC law, troops were placed in a building on the Strand, awaiting orders to take over the BBC's external services in Bush House. Meanwhile, the corporation's engineers there had been issued with sledgehammers and told to destroy their own equipment, rather than let it fall into the hands of Eden and the government. Inside the government, some ministers became uneasy about the whole escapade. Sir Anthony Nutting, a foreign office minister, would resign in protest, 
though without the public drama achieved by Robin Cook before the Iraq War. And as with the Iraq War, nearly half a century later, late in the day when the opposition really organised itself, crowds turned out to protest and private unease spilled into public anger. For the first time in modern British history, large numbers of people came onto the streets of London to challenge a government going to war. The Suez demonstrations would be followed by the great anti-Vietnam clashes of the 60s and the marches against Tony Blair's Iraq War. But in the 50s, nothing like this had happened before. Suez split Britain down the middle, dividing families and friends. It brought the Prime Minister into angry conflict with establishment institutions and establishment grandees. Lord Mountbatten is said to have warned the young Queen that her government were behaving like lunatics, and a former royal aide believed she thought her Premier was mad. Because of Suez, a generation of politically aware younger people grew up rather more contemptuous of politicians generally, readier to mock them, keener to dismiss and laugh at them. The decline of respect for the craft of politics would probably have happened anyway in modern Britain, but the events of the winter of 1956 hastened that decline. Even the military was affected. The call-up for Suez provoked wide-scale desertions and minor mutinies across Britain. Some 20,000 reservists were called back and many declined to come, some scrawling bollocks across their papers. In Southampton, Royal Engineers pelted a general with stones. In Kent, there were similar scenes among reservists. More or less to a man, they refused to polish boots or press uniforms or even do guard duty. They spent most of the time abusing the career soldiers for being idiots. The army could do nothing. It went further than Kent. In Malta, in the unpleasant surroundings of the Crendy airstrip, Grenadier guards, fuelled by naffy tea, marched through the camp, down to the building where the officers were housed. They were angry about conditions as much as politics, but earned a stiff lecture from their commanding officer on the dire consequences of mutiny. Shortly afterwards, though, the reservists of the 37th Heavy Anti-Aircraft Regiment of the Royal Artillery were at it again, marching through the Maltese camp to protest and shouting down their regimental sergeant major. These were minor incidents undoubtedly, and had much to do with boredom and irritation among reservists, brought suddenly to dusty, unpleasant camps, yet headlines in the press about army mutinies and protest marches sent shockwaves through the forces. The biggest single difference between the Suez and Iraq crises was, of course, that the Americans did not want war in 1956 and were determined for it in 2003. Anguished letters and telephone transcripts tell the story of mutual misunderstanding. From Eden's point of view, the US was preventing any real pressure against NASA while talking grandly about international law. He gave enough broad hints, he thought, for the White House to realise that he and the French Prime Minister were ready to use force. At different times, Eisenhower's team had given the impression that they accepted force might be necessary. Dulles had talked of making NASA disgorge his prize. So, while Britain could not tip off the Americans about the dangerous and illegal agreement with Israel, or give military details, there was a general belief that the Americans would understand. This was an error. From Eisenhower's viewpoint, his old allies had dropped him in the dirt at the worst possible time, during an election, and when the Russians were brutally crushing the Hungarian uprising with 4,000 tanks and terrible bloodshed. Eisenhower and Dulles had failed to pick up persistent hints and worried reports from CIA agents in Paris and London, just as they had failed to understand the consequences of cancelling their help for the Aswan Dam. 
America in the mid-fifties was a young superpower, still flat-footed. This time, it had been fooled by both sides. So, on the early morning of the 5th of November, 1956, British and French paratroopers began dropping from the air above Port Side. A huge British convoy, which had been steaming for nine days from Malta, arrived with tanks and artillery, and the drive south to secure the Suez Canal began. So far, only 32 British and French commandos had been killed, against 2,000 Egyptian dead. In a military sense, things had gone smoothly. The politics was another matter. When the invasion happened, Eisenhower and Dulles exploded with anger. According to American White House correspondents, the air at the Oval Office turned blue in a way that had not happened for a century. Dulles seriously compared the Anglo-French action to that of the Soviets in Budapest. Unfortunately, at much the same time as Eisenhower was hitting the roof of his office, NASA was hitting the floor of the canal, with no fewer than 47 ships filled with concrete. He had done the very thing Eden's plan was supposed to prevent. He had blocked the canal. For the first and last time, the United States made common cause with the Soviet Union at the UN to demand a stop to the invasion. The motion for a ceasefire was passed by a crushing 64 votes to five. World opinion was aflame. India, eight years independent, sided with the Soviet Union, which was threatening to send 50,000 Russian volunteers to the Middle East. In the event, as the British troops were moving south, having taken port side, and with the roads to Cairo open to them, they were suddenly ordered to stop. An immediate ceasefire and swift pullout was being ordered by London, not because of the views of irate squaddies in the home counties or the private views of the Queen or fulminations in Moscow. Britain was being humiliated by the United States in a way that had not happened since the War of Independence. On the ground, clear-sighted about their national interest and uninterested in American anger, the French were prepared to keep going. Britain was in a different situation. It came down to money, oil and nerves. The pound was again being sold around the world, with the US Treasury piling in to viciously turn the screw. Fuel was soon running short, and in what seemed like a return to wartime conditions, British petrol stations briefly required motorists to hand over brown-coloured ration coupons. Britain needed emergency oil supplies from the Americans, which would have to be paid for in dollars. Britain didn't have enough dollars. Another loan was needed. Harold Macmillan turned to Washington and the International Monetary Fund to ask for help. The U.S. Treasury Secretary, George Humphrey, told him, via Britain's new Washington ambassador, Sir Harold Katchia, You'll not get a dime from the U.S. government if I can stop you until you've gotten out of sewers. You are like burglars who have broken into somebody else's house, so get out. When you do, and not until then, you'll get help. By now, the Egyptian Air Force had been destroyed and 13,500 British troops with 8,500 French troops had landed at Port Side and were making their way south towards the canal. Rather embarrassingly, the Israelis, led by Ariel Sharon, later to be a controversial Prime Minister, had long ago reached their destination and stopped, so there was no real need to separate anyone. But the game was up by then. With the country split from Buckingham Palace to the Barrack Room, Eden's health and nerves gave way. To many it seemed as if NATO itself was on the verge of breaking apart. After a brutally direct phone call from Eisenhower, ordering him to announce a ceasefire, Eden called his French opposite number, Guy Mollet, who was begging him to hang on. According to French sources, he told him, I am cornered. I can't hang on. 
I'm being deserted by everybody. My loyal associate Nutting has resigned as Minister of State. I can't even rely on unanimity among the Conservatives. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the Church, the oil businessmen, everybody is against me. The Commonwealth threatens to break up. I cannot be the gravedigger of the Crown. And then I want you to understand, really understand, Eisenhower phoned me. I can't go it alone without the United States. It would be the first time in the history of England. No, it is not possible. The ceasefire and the withdrawal that followed were a disaster for Britain, which left Nasser stronger than ever. It finished Eden, though not before he had lied to the Commons about the Anglo-French-Israeli plot at Sèvres. He said, I want to say this on the question of foreknowledge, and to say it quite bluntly to the House, that there was not foreknowledge that Israel would attack Egypt. There was not. This can be compared to the French copy of the Protocol of Sèvres agreed six weeks earlier, which begins by stating quite bluntly, Les forces israéliennes lancent le 23e octobre 1956 dans la soirée une opération d'envergure contre les forces égyptiennes. The canal was eventually reopened and reparations agreed, though the issue of oil security then assumed a new importance. Britain was left chastened and stripped of moral authority, Washington's rebuked lieutenant. The effect on the U.S. is also worth recalling. Eisenhower and Dulles had been driven by pique, masquerading as high Christian principle, and their handling of the crisis encouraged the Arab nationalism which would return to haunt America in later decades. Eisenhower misled the American people about his true state of knowledge of Britain's readiness to use force. His public statement that he abhorred the invasion because the U.S. did not approve of force to settle international disputes sat oddly with his earlier interest in using nuclear weapons in Korea. The Russians took note and were almost certainly more belligerent afterwards. As a result of Suez, the French distanced themselves from America. It led to the Franco-German axis, which endures to this day. The politics of the Middle East changed radically. Britain would not again possess independent power or influence in the region. The age of American power there, based on support for Israel and the oil alliance with the Saudi royal family, leading to so much later controversy, properly began after Suez. Much later, according to the then Vice President, Richard Nixon, Eisenhower had second thoughts about Suez, calling his decision to crush Britain his greatest foreign policy mistake. Dulles, who was desperately ill with cancer, told the head of the hospital where he died in 1959 that he reckoned he had been wrong over Suez too. Other consequences of Suez were less predictable. It provoked the arrival of the mini-car, designed in the wake of the petrol price shock caused by the seizure of the canal. It even affected the fast rate of decline of the shipyards of Clydeside and Tyneside, whose small oil tankers were soon replaced by supertankers built at larger yards overseas. These, it was discovered, could sail round the Cape and deliver their cargo just as cheaply as smaller ships using the canal. Had this been realised a few years earlier, Eden might never have gone to war and might be remembered now as one of our finer prime ministers. But it wasn't, and Suez became four-letter shorthand for the moment when Britain realised her new place in the world. Muddle or Logic? Two Soldiers Harold Macmillan's arrival as Prime Minister meant a swift acceptance of American power. Was there another way? The man who was so like him, and yet so unlike him, Enoch Powell, certainly thought there was. But Macmillan 
devious and wily, was the better politician. First in, first out, was the brutal, accurate jibe about him. Having been even more gung-ho about NASA than Eden himself, it was he, as Chancellor, who felt the full impact of the run on the pound and led the political retreat. Unsettlingly, Macmillan was also having a series of private meetings with the American ambassador in London during the height of the crisis, advertising himself as Eden's deputy and suggesting ways in which the ceasefire and withdrawal could be sold to Tory backbenchers. Macmillan and Eisenhower knew each other from the war, and while it cannot be said that the Americans actually replaced Eden with a complacent Atlanticist, the switchover was done in the old Tory way, by a cabal agreement inside the cabinet. They certainly got the man they wanted. Macmillan swiftly tried to put Suez behind him, and, greatly to France's disgust, was soon pleading with Washington for help in nuclear weapons. For a brief period, Bevin's belief in the possibility of a genuinely independent British bomb had been vindicated. But this period lasts no longer than five or six years. The gap between the time it took for the new British bomb to be dropped by long-range jet bomber, to be made militarily usable, and the moment in 1958 when Macmillan realised that British bombing and missile technology was already out of date and insufficiently threatening to deter a Russian attack. Remaining in the tiny nuclear club wasn't the only route that Macmillan could have taken, but nuclear weapons seemed a relatively cheap shortcut to retaining the full fig of global swagger. Macmillan bluffed when he could, authorising the first British H-bomb explosion at Christmas Island in May 1957. It was partly a fake, a hybrid bomb intended to fool the US into thinking its ally was further ahead than we really were. The next year, at a crucial showdown between British and American scientists in Washington, the British Aldermaston team persuaded Edward Teller's men from Los Alamos that Britain was just as far advanced in the theory of nuclear weaponry. Teller conceded that the laws of physics seemed to apply on both sides of the Atlantic, and for a brief time the cooperation of 1940 to 1945 was resumed. Although, after Suez, any illusion of equal partners working together was an obvious sham. Perhaps Britain, like France, could have broken away from the American-run military command of NATO and returned to developing her own nuclear weapons and strategy, joining full-heartedly with the new Europe. It would have been expensive and altered the shape of the post-war world, but an entirely different path was available to Britain after Suez, even if it seemed a stony and unattractive one. Macmillan never considered it. The stony path was the terrain of a politician to whom Macmillan was almost allergic. One morning in 1962, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Hume, walked into the Cabinet Room in Number 10 to find the Prime Minister quietly shuffling the place names around the table. He asked the Cabinet Secretary what was going on. Had someone died? No, came the reply. It was all to do with Enoch Powell. The PM can't have Enoch's accusing eye looking at him straight across the table any more. And poor Enoch was put way down the left, where Harold couldn't see him. It is not a bad symbol for the age. Avoiding eye contact with unpleasant choices was part of the art of governing, and for much of this time governments got away with it rather successfully. Powell, a brilliant romantic, driven by a cold, intense logic, was tormented by the choices ahead, from the economic effect of an ever-growing state to the consequences of the loss of empire and the effect of immigration on traditional Englishness. His answers to these questions would change over time, and some would destroy his political career, but he never stopped following his agonised conscience. Macmillan, by contrast, was perfectly well aware of hard choices ahead. His diaries are full of foreboding, and he could write crisp, clear-sighted private papers.
He pushed decolonization hard and struggled to get Britain into the European economic community. But confronted by the most dangerous questions, such as whether union power and state spending needed to be reversed, he seemed rather more interested in staying in office and reassuring the people that all would be well. He was a great actor, a wonderful showman, and he put Powell so far out of eyeline that he couldn't see him. Much though they disliked one another, Macmillan and Powell had several important things in common. They had both been soldiers and both carried a certain guilt that they had not been killed fighting Germans. Harold Macmillan had fought exceedingly bravely in the First World War. He was wounded repeatedly. He survived without ever forgetting how many of his friends and the soldiers serving under him had not. He had a shuffling walk, much mocked when he became Prime Minister as some kind of aristocratic affectation. It was, in fact, caused by shrapnel from a German shell. Powell, a much younger man, had been an intelligence officer with the Eighth Army in the Second World War and said much later, with a touch of the characteristic Powellite emphasis, I should like to have been killed in the war. Both men were haunted. Both also came from humbler families than Macmillan's marriage and pheasant shooting or Powell's perfect diction and fox hunting might have suggested. Macmillan's family had been Scottish crofters before going into the book trade, which bought him his privileged upbringing. Powell was the son of a Birmingham schoolmaster who rose through mental power and ferocious hard work. Both men were well read, particularly in the classics, and gifted at languages, though Macmillan lacked Powell's brilliance and preferred English novelists and political biographies. They shared a belief in Britain's unique destiny. The differences between them were chemical and generational. Harold Macmillan was a high-minded Victorian reformer who grew up to the sound of horse-drawn carriages and the spectacle of the old Queen's Diamond Jubilee. A young Tory, his conscience was stirred by the awful poverty of the Depression, notably in his Stockton constituency. His politics in the thirties became radical to the point of extremism. He hired the former secretary of Oswald Mosley's new party, a former Marxist. He called for widespread planning of the economy including the abolition of the stock exchange and the bringing of the trade unions into the heart of economic decision-making. He was remarkably close to the politics of Tony Benn fifty years later. He might well not have stayed with the Tories had the war not intervened. After it, he was still a stirrer, suggesting renaming the Conservatives the New Democratic Party. By the time he returned to government in 1951, his ideological wildness had matured into a paternalistic mildness, a horror of right-wingers and left-wingers both. Like Winston Churchill, the son of an American mother, he hoped to show that in an American world, Britain could still play the role of a wise, if wobbly, parent. Greece to America's Rome. Enoch Powell, 18 years younger, was no less romantic. But he was formed by the university study, the Indian Army and the last days of the British Empire. Unlike Churchill or Macmillan, he loathed the Americans to the point where he seriously believed, during 1944 to 1945, that the next war would pit Europe and Russia on the one hand against the anti-imperialist United States on the other. Greece to their Rome. Had Powell not been a distinguished Latinist, he would probably have preferred to torch Rome. Where Macmillan was vague and paternalistic in his thinking, Powell had a disconcerting habit of beginning with first principles and then following his logic wherever it led, which was often to uncomfortable places. Sovereignty, independence and race were not woolly abstractions for him. He distrusted wit and showmanship, 
though like his Labour doppelganger and friend, Michael Foote, he was always more of a showman and a personality politician than he admitted. Enoch Powell came relatively late to hunting, but compared to Macmillan, he was the wilder horseman, notorious among friends for throwing himself off while leaping unwisely over high fences with unknown drops. Macmillan was the ultimate master of staying in the saddle and would rule for years. Powell never would, but his anger matters as much for the British story as Macmillan's affectation that things were under control. Together, these two men make up the inner argument that animates the thirteen Tory years, even when looking the other way. Macmillan had the power, but not the ideas. Powell lacked the power most of the time, but he would find the ideas. The Revolt of the Chicken Farmer Ideas matter, and because ideas matter, so too does the story of an old Etonian Christian scientist, former RAF fighter pilot, chicken farmer, and unsuccessful turtle rancher called Anthony Fisher. In the high years of socialism and planning, from 1945 onwards, Fisher stood out as an utterly self-certain individualist and anti-socialist. Communism is the poison offered to the people, socialism is the cup in which it is given, and the welfare state is the tempting label on the bottle, he liked to say. In the Britain of the 40s and 50s, these views made him an eccentric. Once, this country had been the world centre for liberal economics, famous for its people's distrust of big government, a land without identity cards or intrusive central government. Now, even its Liberal Party was a keen supporter of the post-war consensus, the party, after all, of Beveridge and Keynes. There were some standing out against it, not many, but some. Their unlikely spiritual teacher was Friedrich von Hayek, an exiled Viennese economist who came from the very heart of cosmopolitan intellectualism, where socialism, communism, Freudianism and fascism contended. A cousin of the daunting philosopher Wittgenstein, he would help reconvert the British to their old doctrines of economic liberalism. Hayek had arrived in London to teach economics in 1931, and developed a close rapport with another economist, Lionel Robbins, the son of a London market gardener who had been taken up by that creator of the welfare state, William Beveridge. Hayek and Robbins formed a crucial partnership at the London School of Economics, a subversive friendship which would help, eventually, to change the intellectual climate of Britain. Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, published in 1944, was one of the most influential books of the age, a full-throated attack on socialism, which was received with contempt by many, but admired, with reservations, by both George Orwell and Keynes himself. But a book is not a movement. Liberal economists did begin to meet regularly in Switzerland from 1947, but for Britain the key moment came with the arrival on the scene of Fisher, now an almost entirely forgotten man. He had been traumatised by watching the death of his brother during the Battle of Britain and rebuilt his life as a Sussex farmer. A staunch individualist, he had been entranced by Hayek's book and managed to meet his hero after the war. Hayek told Fisher not to try to become a politician, but instead to try to win the battle of ideas by forming some kind of institute or organisation to fight the rotting influence of the state. It was a message Fisher never forgot. Luckily for him, the state stepped in to help him spread it. In 1952, his herd of cattle contracted foot-and-mouth disease and had to be destroyed. Fisher used his compensation money to visit the United States. There, he not only picked up the latest free market thinking, but 
visited a huge experimental broiler chicken farm at Cornell University, where fifteen thousand birds were being raised under one roof. This, thought Fisher, was exactly what the meat-starved British needed. It was illegal to import the chunky American poultry central to the new factory farming, so the anti-regulations Fisher was reduced to covering two dozen fertilised white rock eggs with silver foil and bringing them through in his hand luggage as Easter eggs. Back in Sussex, he built sheds with gas heating systems and an overhead rail system to bring in food. Soon, twenty-four chickens became two thousand four hundred, and then twenty-four thousand. Within a few years, his family were raising one point two five million birds. Buxted chickens had been formed, and Fisher was a very rich man, the most successful poultry farmer in Europe. Across Britain, affordable roast chicken became a staple of the Sunday lunch table, thanks to Fisher. And with the money they made him, he was able to fund the Institute for Economic Affairs, undoubtedly the most influential think tank in modern British history. Set up by Fisher and the eccentric ex-paratrooper and liberal Oliver Smedley, the IEA was intended to combat the socialist influence of the Fabians. Soon they would be joined by others, Ralph Harris and Arthur Selden. Hayek would be proved right. It was the seeding of ideas that mattered most, not conventional political careers. The IEA first touched British politics during the winter of 1957 to 58, when inflation was rising above 4% and wage settlements were in double figures. Like so many political crises of the time, this one occurred in deepest private. The question was whether government spending should be cut back as part of a wider drive to curb the amount of money in the economy. Banks were also to be instructed to cut back credit. Macmillan was far more worried about confrontation and unemployment than he was about rising prices. His chancellor, Peter Thornycroft, disagreed. He was insistent that savings had to be made to squeeze inflation and save the pound. His enemies thought Macmillan an unprincipled coward. He was certainly driven by a ruthless enthusiasm for staying in office, but there was another side to the prime minister. Brought up in the intellectual shadow of Keynes, he thought that seriously painful cuts were perhaps not necessary. And that the economy was already slowing. Though Macmillan was inclined to dither, haggle, and to split the difference, this was a shrewd call. And around him, he had many spending ministers looking after the armed forces, the hospitals, and welfare, who were bitterly against cutting back. He feared some of them might resign. On the other side of the argument, as it turned out, were the real resigners: Thornycroft and his two junior Treasury ministers. The wealthy, sarcastic, ruthlessly logical, and nearly blind Nigel Birch and Enoch Powell. Their insistence that it was vital to control the money supply was not just a technical position, but was intertwined with a personal suspicion of corporatism and the big state that was close to the more intellectual economic case now being pushed by the newly formed IEA. Lionel Robbins had been advising the three ministers, despite much sucking of teeth by more consensus-minded officials. And Fisher's men would come to see Thornycroft and his fellow rebels at Macmillan's treasury as heroes. They provided the intellectual ammunition and connected through Powell to younger Tories and gained them as converts. Powell had already been introduced to Hayek's thinking. In the months before the three Treasury ministers resigned, they had been dropping in on one another for a rolling conversation, which showed they had all concluded the same thing: the government spending was too high and had to be severely reined back. Against the instincts of their own officials as well as their colleagues, they put together a planned series of cuts, including a 50% increase in the cost of school meals, 
freezes on pay rises, and the removal of family allowances for the second child. It would have hit five million families, including millions of the very middle-class mothers who support the Tories most needed. It was a deliberately tough and provocative package, and battle was duly joined in the cabinet. If there was ever a moment before the great political smash-ups of the 70s, when ministers could have gripped the issue of inflation and asserted themselves against the consensus of Whitehall and the unions, this was it. Day after day, the arguments raged back and forwards. Compromises were offered, partially accepted, and then rejected again. Tempers grew shorter. The Treasury team trooped in and out of Number 10. A special cabinet was held on Friday, then again on the Sunday. But Thornycroft. Despite being accused of Hitler tactics by irate colleagues, would not budge. Macmillan, anxious to get away for a tour of the Commonwealth, would not concede the cuts. All three ministers then resigned. Thornycroft would later become chairman of the Tories under Margaret Thatcher. Birch would struggle with his growing blindness and never return. Powell's stormy career had many more crises in it yet. In apparently throwaway but actually carefully considered words. Macmillan dismissed the whole matter as a little local difficulty, appointed a new team, and swanned off abroad exactly on schedule. It seemed stylish, insouciant, masterly. From it, immediately, nothing flowed. Some cuts were made by the new chancellor. The economy was, in fact, turning down, which suggests Thornycroft's medicine would have been grim indeed. Yet this was a turning point, away from the ideas of free marketeers. And towards the last phase of the planning economy, which would end in disaster, that in turn would eventually produce Thatcherism, the IEA's final triumph, and the time when Anthony Fisher's eggs came home to roost. Before that could happen, another pre-election boom was engineered in 1959, and a new idea for improving British economic performance began to take hold: the central plan used by the French. By 1961, there was a pay pause to try to hold down inflation. And then the establishment of a grand chat-in, the National Economic Development Council, or NEDI, which brought industrialists, civil servants, and trade unionists around a table to discuss how to produce more. Reggie Maudling virtually ordered the car makers to build new factories in Scotland, Merseyside, and Wales in order to combat rising unemployment. The following year saw a four percent growth target. The run-up to the 1964 election under a new prime minister featured a giveaway budget by Maudling, by now Chancellor, which would later be blamed by Labour for leaving an atrocious economic crisis. Almost all the weapons used by Labour to try and plan their way out of economic decline, from pay and incomes targets to national plans and regional directives, were already in place under Macmillan and his successor Alec Douglas Hume. All would fail. Anthony Fisher knew why. Things that fall on your feet. The best answer was clearly for British industry to produce more than the rest of the world wanted to buy, reliably and at the right price. Was that impossible? In the fifties, there were plenty of successful British corporations. There were the oil giants such as Royal Dutch Shell, product of a merger in 1906, and by then a vast international business headquartered in London. There were the consumer combines. Notably, Unilever, another Dutch and British joint venture dating from 1928, which squatted across everything from soap powder to sausages, toothpaste to frozen food, and which was run on the latest principles of market research, ruthlessly targeted advertising, and properly trained managers. There was the privatised again steel industry, 
The Steel Company of Wales, whose vast Port Talbot works in South Wales, the city of steel which never sleeps, employed 20,000 people, could boast one of the most modern mill systems in the world. Other private steel firms, at Consett, for instance, were also working at full pelt and seemed competitive with their European rivals. There was ICI, the chemical combine created in the 20s, which enjoyed a near monopoly in many products, which employed 6,000 research workers and by the end of the 50s was spending more on R&D than all Britain's universities combined. There were electronic companies like Ferranti's and the sprawling engine-making light bulb, fridge and washing machine group AEI. The still successful engineers such as Rolls-Royce and Vickers and tightly run metal bashers like Guest, Keen and Nettlefolds. These and other groups were not allowed to sit pretty or lack for competition. The 50s had seen the start of ruthless corporate raiding by tycoons who took over, broke up and reorganised flaxid and poorly managed firms. There was much talk of learning the latest American management techniques. The big US advertising companies were already growing in London and influencing British thinking. Better design was being eagerly sought out from Italy, Denmark and France. In his Anatomy of Britain, 1962, the journalist Anthony Sampson paints a vivid picture of one of the new property tycoons who was making a fortune by breaking up the inner-city portfolios of great old companies and putting up new developments, what he called his canalettos, the new skylines of booming Britain. Jack Cotton, a Birmingham boy made good, was living in a suite in the Dorchester Hotel, surrounded by surveyors, maps and paintings by Renoir, a jaunty business impresario, short, red-faced, 59, with smooth black hair, shrewd eyes, a pointed handkerchief in his pocket and a bow tie to match. His cars are called JC1 and JC2. Then there was Hugh Fraser, the Glasgow draper's son who was building a huge network of stores and other businesses across the country. In 1948, he floated House of Fraser and created a private company, Scottish and Universal Investment Trusts, Suits, which became a mighty force in the 50s. By 1957, he had bought London's John Barker Group, and two years later, Harrods. Then, another outsider, the Italian-born Charles Forty, who had emigrated to Aloha in Scotland, was quietly building a modest chain of roadside cafes into a huge hotel and catering business. He opened Britain's first motorway cafe and his little chef, and from 1958, Happy Eater restaurants, while not necessarily the finest examples of continental cuisine, kept generations of travelling Britons fueled. These men are also part of the story of the 50s, alongside the more familiar images of tweed-suited old Etonians ambling around grouse moors. Even in government, the rumbles of modernisation could be heard. The hyperactive Tory minister Ernie Marples, a self-made businessman and rare working-class Araviste in Macmillan's cabinet, a fireball of energy in the Jack Cotton mould was busy recasting Britain's ancient transport system. The first parking metres, for instance, went up in London in 1958 in Grosvenor Square. Under his appointee and friend, Dr Beeching, brutal cuts in the rail network would soon follow. Investment went instead to new roads and traffic management systems. During those 13 Tory years, car ownership quadrupled to 8 million and huge amounts of commerce were diverted from rail to lorries. Britain's car industry, which would later become the ultimate symbol of industrial failure, was looking strong. The tangle of small competing companies that had marked the pre-war industry had been radically pruned. In 1952, the two great rivals, Austin and Morris, came together to form the British Motor Company. Herbert Austin's company at Longbridge, Birmingham, which traced its history to 1906, had dominated the interwar years with its Austin 7. 
This was the first British car which could be bought in large numbers by the less wealthy. Good enough to be built under license by BMW and copied by Nissan, it had sold nearly 300,000 by the outbreak of war. By 1948, a new range of Austins, the Princess and Shear line, were spattered across magazine and newspaper adverts, and the A40 Somersets and Devons were arriving. Lord Nuffield, over at Oxford, had been one of the great industrial pioneers of modern Britain, building his first car just before the First World War, and still going strong enough at the time of the merger to become president of the new BMC. His Morris 8 and Morris 10 had won pre-war devotees. After the war, it was the Oxford Company which produced the first great British car of the age of mass motoring, Alec Isagonis's revolutionary Morris Minor of 1948. This would become the first British model to sell over a million, and would still be in production as late as 1971. Lord Nuffield had not been an immediate fan, describing the car as that damned poached egg designed by that damned foreigner. The Great Aragonis Alec Isagonis deserves a shorter side in the narrative, a space for himself. He not only designed the Morris Minor, but in 1959, the year Macmillan, at the height of his reputation, called a particularly successful election, he produced the Mini, too. This was the nearest thing to chic Macmillan's age produced, though, of course, Macmillan himself would never have bought anything so small and vulgar. Isagonis can lay claim to being one of the more influential figures in the history of the car in Britain, as well as being about the only industrial designer anyone has heard of. The son of a Greek engineer living in Turkey who had taken British citizenship, and a German brewer's daughter, his early years had been lived on the site of his father's marine engineering business, watching the drawings transform themselves into engines. He is as good an example as any of the benefit that immigration brought to the country. He was a war refugee. The First World War peace treaties had carved up the Ottoman Empire and given Smyrna, the port where Isagonis lived, to Greece. The Turks won it back and many foreigners fled. Isagonis's father died on the way and he arrived with his mother in London in 1922, virtually penniless. He learned engineering and industrial drawing in London before getting work first for Humber, then Morris. An unconventional designer, he loathed teamwork and mathematics, describing the latter as the enemy of every truly creative man. He learned in part by hand-making his own racing car, which he raced himself before the war. Later, he would ridicule such innovations as car radios, seatbelts and comfortable seats. Isagonis's Morris Minor had been radical in design and structure. It was the nearest of any British car to the Hitler-era Volkswagen Beetle. His Mini Minor was commissioned in the immediate aftermath of the Suez Crisis, when petrol shortages had focused attention on the case for cheap, economical cars. The country was already latching onto the cheap bubble cars being imported from Italy and Germany, and soon being made in Britain too, at a Brighton factory. Isagonis' brief was to produce something for the British Motor Corporation that could take them on, but was also a proper car, not a motorbike with pretensions. He not only made it look good, but by turning round the engine and placing it over the wheels, he found a way of packing far more space for passengers into a smaller area than any previous car. His design was so radical it needed a complete set of new machine tools to produce. Isagonis designed them too. The Mini would become an icon of British cool, a chirpy, cheeky little car we like to think represented the national character at its classless best. Yet the true story of the Mini is not quite as flattering to British industry. The early Minis were shoddily built, with a series of mechanical problems and poor trim. 
More importantly, they leaked so badly people joked that every car should be sold with a free pair of Wellington boots, and one journalist said he was keeping goldfish in the door pockets. Isagonis was short-tempered and intolerant, with more junior design and production colleagues, who called him Aragonis and Isagonyet. He had spoken before about building a charwoman's car, but the lower-income families that Minnie was aimed at initially took against its unfamiliar shape, small size, and austere lack of trim. In fact, for a while, the car looked as if it would be a thundering disaster. The economics behind it were also, to say the least, obscure. The basic model sold at £350, much cheaper than rival small cars such as the Triumph Herald, £495, and the Ford Anglia, £380. And, of course, BMC's own old Morris Minor, £416. Yet it had been very expensive to develop and required its own machine tooling to make. How was this possible? Ford torn apart to cost it and decided it would cost them more to build than BMC was selling it for. It seems unlikely there was any profit. In their urge to undercut its competitors, the makers of the Mini were ignoring the development costs and selling the car at a loss. Company people say they continued to sell it at a loss for years. BMC would eventually sell more than five million Minis, but its success only came about thanks to what we would now call celebrity endorsement and even spin. Isagonis happened to know Princess Margaret's new husband, the photographer Lord Snowden, and presented the glamorous couple with one as a birthday present. They were duly photographed whizzing round London in it. The Queen tried one out, and soon Steve McQueen, Twiggy, the Beatles, and Marianne Faithful, Mick Jagger's girlfriend, were seen in them too. This was completely the opposite image to BMC's and Isagonis's original idea of a cheap, no-frills car for the working classes. Conservative-minded people found their car taken up as a chic emblem of youthful impertinence. In the end, of course, whatever works, works. Yet the mechanical problems, lack of good teamwork, and unbusiness-like pricing strategy show that there was a darker side to the mini-story from the first. Isagonis's biographer concluded that, far from being a business triumph for the shaky British Motor Corporation, the mini was the first nail in their coffin. Isagonis was a knife in the world of business, but he was prescient in one respect. He hated mergers. The Austin Morris one produced huge internal pain with two mutually hostile company bureaucracies locking horns. The results were not immediately obvious. Through the 50s, BMC rationalised its cars and cut the number of engines used, while keeping its old Austin and Morris dealers happy. With fast economic growth and an insatiable appetite for affordable cars, the domestic industry did well. There was American competition, but then there always had been. General Motors had been a big player in the UK since it took over Vauxhall in 1928, and Ford had chosen Britain as its European base even earlier. By the 60s, German and French imports were also frequent sites on British roads. Still, there were few signs of a domestic car industry in crisis. Other producers were marketing long-lived and successful models, from the sleek Jaguars to the stolid and stately Rover 8s and Rover 50s. Isagonis was not the only free spirit of the times. Rover went far down the road, at 152 miles an hour, towards a commercial jet-powered car. Yet industrial action was growing, despite managers who bought off the unions with generous settlements in an era when they could easily sell every car they made. There was a particularly bad strike at BMC in 1958. There were some strange management decisions, egged on by politicians. 
Ministers trying to bring employment to run-down parts of Scotland and the north of England persuaded BMC to create a cumbersome and expensive empire of new factories, which it did not have the expertise to manage properly. Little of this was apparent to the ordinary observer then, the first years of popular motoring mania. The Growth of Car Mania Britain was slow to catch the motorway addiction. There had been a spate of road building in the 30s, but it was not until 1936 that the government took national responsibility for a network of major roads. All building then stopped when war began three years later. But America's vast highways were an inspiration to British engineers, and Hitler's Germany had been known for its gleaming new autobahns. With Britain's cramped, slow, badly congested roads full of military vehicles, in 1941, a cabinet committee was being urged to consider motorways as a vital part of post-war construction. The man responsible was Frederick Cook, a gifted and pushy highways engineer, though his committee included Attlee, Ernie Bevin, and the founding director-general of the BBC, Lord Reith. Lord Leathers, the wartime transport minister, duly announced that Britain had been converted to the idea of motorways to be reserved exclusively for fast-moving traffic, while warning that they must not be developed on too grand a scale as advocated by some enthusiasts who are perhaps unduly influenced by continental analogies. No Nazi speed mania here, in other words. The result was a Special Roads Act in 1949, which led eventually, when money allowed, to the motorways, which began to carve up and transform the country. In theory, motorway Britain had been only one of two possible options. The world's first industrialised nation was still wired tightly together with a massive railway network. By the end of the 50s, British Rail controlled 17,800 miles of track, linking most small towns and every city. It ran more than 7,000 stations and a million freight wagons, all of it worked by a massive staff, 475,000 people in 1961 but the system was making an equally massive loss and needed major investment. With cars becoming the dream of middle-class families, perhaps the railways at that scale needed some pruning. Instead, an affable, mustachioed former ICI manager called Dr. Richard Beeching came along and cut them to ribbons. Beeching was greatly admired at the time as a living symbol of thrusting New Britain. In the early 60s, to do a Beeching became flattering shorthand for ruthless management efficiency. Hired as the chairman of the railways, he conducted a reshaping plan which proposed the closure of 2,361 stations and 5,000 miles of track. And that was just for starters. It was one of the most extreme liquidations in the history of British commerce, on a par with the collapse of the car industry a decade later, or the end of shipbuilding on the Clyde. Suspicions have been heard ever since that the beaching cuts were politically motivated. They had been prepared for by a secret committee on which sat industrialists, but no railway people. They came a few years after a savagely effective strike by two railway unions, which had reminded Conservative ministers that while a country could be closed down if it was linked by trains, this was very much harder if it was a lorry and car economy. The Tories had already denationalised road transport, putting 24,000 lorries back into the hands of private hauliers. Everything from fish to potatoes, newspapers to engine parts, seemed to be transferring from rail. This was what modern meant. And to cap it all, the minister in charge, who had given Beeching his mandate to cut the railways until they made a profit, without taking social or wider economic interests into account, was hardly neutral on the issue. 
Ernest Marples was a bouncy, chirpy Manchester engineering worker's son, who had won a grammar school scholarship and gone on to work as a miner, a postman, an accountant, and a chef before his war service. A Labour activist in his youth, he was demobbed as a keen Tory, and after becoming an MP, served as one of the few real modernisers in the 1951 to 1964 governments. He brought in trunk or automatic dialing, designed to make telephones more popular. Until the late fifties, everyone had to call up a telephone exchange, give the number, and wait to be put through by an operator. He had launched Britain's premium bonds too, denounced by Harold Wilson as a squalid raffle, but instantly popular. Marples's enthusiasm for the new extended most dramatically, however, to roads. He charged around the world looking for examples of the traffic systems of the future. And brought in the first yellow lines, the first parking meters, the first major roundabouts. He had formed his own civil engineering company, which would soon be responsible for West London's Hammersmith flyover and much else. Marples was not keen on railways, though. When challenged about the conflict of interest in having his motorway construction company, he simply passed the shares to his wife. Under him, Britain finally embarked on its motorway age. Those were the days. The first was opened on the 5th of December 1958, an eight-mile bypass of Preston. No major road had been built for 20 years. British engineers had yet to learn the intricacies of pre-stressed concrete design, precision, and bearing ratios from colleagues in the United States. It was all something of an experiment for the man in charge, John Cox of Tarmac, who had made his name building instant airstrips during the war. The Preston bypass had to be closed 46 days later because of frost damage. Though the central reservation later allowed it to be widened for levels of traffic undreamed of in the late fifties, it was still too narrow, and its rather beautiful bridges, which had been designed to last for a hundred and twenty years, were knocked down and replaced after thirty. Still, it worked, and the experience was vital for the first long stretch of British motorway, a sixty-seven-mile stretch of the M1 linking London and Yorkshire, opened the following year. Built in only nineteen months, it had three lanes in either direction. And that now humdrum novelty, the first motorway service stations. Marples opened the Watford Gap service station, run by Blue Boar, on the 2nd of November 1959. Newport Pagnell opened six months later. Britain has never been the same since. From then on, motorway building spread at a brisk pace. Stretches of the M60 and M6 appeared during 1960 to 1963. The first section of the A1M was completed in 1961, and the M5 the following year. Scotland's first motorway building, the M8 outside Glasgow, came in 1967. The early 70s saw a dramatic expansion, with the M4 linking London and Bristol, the M40 reaching towards Oxford and Birmingham, and the cities of Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester, and Sheffield all being interconnected. The first five-lane dual carriageway arrived outside Belfast in 1973. And it was only after the completion of the M25 round London in 1985 that the pace of building faltered. In the early years of the new century, it virtually stopped. By then, the network had grown from eight miles to 2,200 miles, and the A roads servicing it greater still. The creation of the motorway network has been called the first centrally planned road system in Britain since the Romans left. It makes a pattern the Romans would have recognised, with London the hub. Radial routes spinning out from it, and only the further west country, rural Wales and northern Scotland, ignored. The Romans might have been surprised at the absence of motorways across East Anglia, 
and the quantity of civil engineering lavished on the north and midlands of England. But that is a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. Today's motorways are more curved than the legions would have found acceptable, avoiding hills and towns, though the straightest stretch of all, part of the A1M near Stilton, is so because it follows the old Roman street for seven miles. The system is rational and heavily used, heavily policed, heavily taxed, and has engorged a swathe of rural England. Even as late as 1985 to 2001, transport projects, mainly roads, took up a further tract of sparse land equal to three times the area of Nottingham. If usage equals success, then few acts of post-war political decision-making have been as popular as the designing and building of what Margaret Thatcher called the Great Car Economy. For every car or van on the roads of Britain in 1950, 2.3 million of them, there were twice as many by the end of the decade, and more than three times as many by the early 60s. By 1970, there were 12 million, and by the end of the century, more than 24 million, ten times as many in half a century. This only gives part of the picture, because these cars are also used much more, going further and for longer. In the last 15 years of the century, car journeys increased by nearly 30%. Year by year, despite propaganda for a healthier lifestyle, high fuel taxes, congestion charging and widespread worry about global warming, the British drive more and walk, cycle or use buses less. In the days of Marples, it was believed that such an increase would also mean vastly more Britons being killed and maimed on the roads. This is one gloomy prediction that has been robustly disproved. Safety campaigns from the Tufty Club of the 50s to the Green Cross Code have had their effect, but the real reason is that the British who think of themselves as lovers of liberty, have allowed their freedom to be drastically curtailed on the roads. From the first general speed limits in the 30s to today's ubiquitous metal snoop force of remote cameras, Britain has developed a driving culture which kills proportionately far fewer people than most comparable countries. If there is a single heroine of that part of our motoring history, it is Barbara Castle. A non-driving minister in her rather glamorous mid-50s Castle had been disappointed to be offered transport by Harold Wilson in 1965. She had hoped to be Home Secretary. But she was formidably ambitious and media savvy and quickly turned the job into a great personal success. When she arrived, some 8,000 people a year were dying on Britain's roads. Figures produced at the time suggested there would be half a million such deaths by the year 2000. Castle's Road Safety Act brought in the breathalyzer to combat drunk driving, extended the trial 70 miles per hour speed limit and made it compulsory for all new cars to have seat belts. There was already a bill prepared, but she toughened it up, rejecting random breath tests but making the penalty a year's automatic disqualification. Castle revved up a storm. The Formula One racing driver Sterling Moss attacked socialist hypocrisy. Letters came in reading, You've ballsed our darts matches up, so get out, you wicked old bee. Or wishing her, Evil Christmas and a whole year of unhappy days. These are the views of the public, you bitchy old cow. Her long-suffering husband, Ted, who did drive, was pursued by journalists eager to catch him over the limit and had to confine himself to tonic water at public events. But in the test's first year, road deaths fell by 1,200. As Castle wrote in her autobiography, she was soon afterwards introduced to a London ambulance driver who told her that before the breathalyzer, their night's work had followed a regular pattern. As soon as the pubs closed, the accident figures shot up and they were operating at full stretch. Now, he said, they spent the night playing cards. 
Seatbelts, which saved the looks of thousands of people and the lives of others, were equally vigorously opposed as an infringement on liberty and a diabolical liberty for women with large bosoms. But they helped stem the deaths. By the end of the century, with nearly three times as many cars on the road as when Mrs. Castle took office, the numbers killed each year were less than half the toll in 1965. Compared to most similar countries, Britain's roads are congested but safe. Slipping through our fingers. To the ordinary observer, there was plenty to be cheerful about throughout British industrial life. The coal industry, though nationalised, was nevertheless at least rationalised and modernised. In these years, some 200,000 miners' jobs went, and superpits were developed using newer and safer technology. While on the other hand, around Britain, the first nuclear power stations came on stream. When Calder Hall was connected to the national grid in 1956, it was the world's first nuclear power station providing energy commercially, and its Magnox gas-cooled reactor incorporated British technology. A further ten similar nuclear power stations followed. Here, as in the car industry and lesser-known examples such as industrial glass, chemicals, and jet engines, not to mention the beginnings of the offshore gas industry, British technology was as good as any in the world. In an entirely different area, P&O was then the largest shipping line in the world, with 366 vessels seemingly dominating commercial traffic across the oceans. This was not, in short, the basket case industrial economy that is sometimes misremembered. But during the 50s, overseas competition was quietly surveying the British market and its complacent industrial giants planning to attack. The story of motorbike manufacturing can stand for other industries too. In the early years of the decade, Harley Davidson in the United States were complaining unsuccessfully to Washington about the unfair competition from the better, cheaper British-made Triumph motorbikes, one of which starred in the Wild One, featuring Marlon Brando in 1954. Another American manufacturer, Indian, gave up and began importing Royal Enfield bikes. Rock stars and Hollywood actors were seen on British machines. There were more than 300 Triumph and BSA dealers in the United States. Yet in 1955, Yamaha began producing their first motorbikes, followed by Suzuki using wartime aircraft manufacturing kit. At the end of the decade, when British motorcycle sales were at their all-time peak, Honda entered its first bike in the TT race. British executives toured Japan in 1960 and were horrified by the scale of production by the three rival companies. Japan was making more than 500,000 motorcycles a year, compared to a maximum UK output of just 140,000. Two years later, these Japanese bikes were winning key races in Europe, and a new manufacturer, Kawasaki, appeared on the scene. It was a story that would be repeated in electronics and cameras. In this period, West Germany's share of world trade grew nearly four times as fast as Britain's, while the Japanese were already in another league for growth. The Americans were racing ahead in starved post-war markets all round the world. It was the structure of Britain's working world that was the problem, not the lack of hard-working people or enterprising companies. Not even at this stage, inflation or industrial militancy. On one side, the industrial companies were dwarfed by the vast nationalised corporations. Sucking capital and talent away from the consumer industries that were becoming so central to people's lives. ICI was vast, as has been described, but every three years the electricity board spent enough capital to create a new ICI. 
On the other side, there were simply too many tiny companies, inefficiently and traditionally run, without any knowledge of new management styles, product designs, or marketing. By the middle of the 50s, of the nearly 300,000 British companies that existed, only around one in a hundred was actually listed on the stock market. The vast majority were undercapitalized traditional private businesses. The economic historian Keith Middlemass describes a business ecology dominated by the continued survival of a mass of small firms reliant on sheltered domestic markets, which were unable or unwilling to reform their practices or their low productivity. Was there any direct connection between this national failure and the kind of people running the country? Industrialists and entrepreneurs were not part of the Tory magic circle and were not socially much regarded. Macmillan and Eden both suffered from a pseudo-aristocratic and sentimental attitude to class. With their First World War service and their interwar worries about the effect of unemployment, they were inclined to admire the working classes from a decent distance and to disdain the common speech and attitudes of upwardly mobile entrepreneurs such as Sir Bernard Docker. They lived privileged and upper-crust lives themselves, set in landed homes and surrounded by literature and art. It was a way of life to which the self-made would aspire too. Michael Heseltine would begin by mixing margarine and butter as he built his low-rent property business and end with a grand country home and an arboretum. For the ruling class of the 50s, the businessmen, the engineers, the factory organisers were vulgar, vulgar, vulgar. Diplomacy, country sports and farming, the arts, high politics, even journalism were all interesting, but industry was a bore. As we have seen, this did not stop large companies thriving or hold back individual entrepreneurs, very often immigrants unintimidated by class barriers. But it was hardly surprising that fewer bright British students went to work for the British motor industry or the chemical giants compared to the best of the Germans and the Americans going into their equivalents. In the 50s, foreigners were not yet talking pityingly of the British disease, but there was talk of the stagnant society. No one grasped the nettle. The Eggheads and Duffelcoat Rebels One group of society was equally opposed to the Tory magic circle and the industrial entrepreneur. Its supporters wore heavy blue or beige duffelcoats, the coarse, toggle-fastened woolen coats designed in Victorian Britain, but which became truly popular on the Atlantic and Arctic convoys of the Second World War, and roll-necked pullovers, baggy tweed jackets, stout shoes. The men would be vigorously bearded. Their look proclaimed the opposite of stylishness or American influence. Their chosen music, too, was very different from the skiffle bands and the rock and roll beginning to infiltrate teenagers' lives. For most politically-minded left-wingers, folk music was the sound of the times, heard in smoke-filled and beery clubs across the nation. Folk music became popular throughout the UK in the 50s, though it has been swamped in memory by the eruption of pop soon afterwards. It was particularly strong in Scotland, where singing traditions among farm workers and miners and the vast popularity of Robert Burns underpinned an audience for the people's music. Edinburgh had been chosen at the end of the 40s as the site of a new annual international festival of the arts, selected just ahead of Bath because it had rather less bomb damage, focusing on the traditional elite arts, opera, classical drama, ballet and fine arts. By 1950, there was growing irritation among the poets and singers at the centre of the Scottish literary revival at the way Scotland was being excluded, and by 1951, an alternative People's Festival was established. 
trade unions, the Communist Party, left-wing councillors and others backed the project, which in turn kicked off the post-war folk scene in Scotland. There were lectures about the danger of American culture swamping British culture, concerts and get-togethers with Gaelic musicians, films, choirs and specially written plays, but within three years, at the height of the Cold War, the Edinburgh People's Festival was closed down by the trade union movements on the grounds that it was a communist plot. It was communist-tinged, but it was hardly a plot. Outside Scotland, the folk movement was strongest in the northern and midland regions of England and the West Country, though folk clubs spread everywhere, and by 1957 there were supposed to be some 1,500 of them in Britain. There was something over-defensive about their self-proclaimed independence from American music, since the United States was undergoing its own folk revival at the same time, also strongly linked to left-wing politics and also defiantly authentic in the face of the rising power of commercial music. Jimmy Miller, the best-known leader of the movement, had been born in Salford into a Scottish socialist family of militants and musicians and had had dozens of jobs in the 1930s before marrying the left-wing actress Joan Littlewood and setting up experimental radical theatre projects with her. Later they split up, and Miller wrote his best-known song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, for an American folk musician, Peggy Seeger, when they fell in love. A committed Marxist, he changed his name to Ewan McColl as he became central to the folk revival. Among his songs was Dirty Old Town, later made famous by the London Irish band The Pogues. Other key figures were the former soldier and poet Hamish Henderson, who first began collecting traditional songs and stories from across the Western Highlands and Islands, and Norman Buckham, the Labour MP. There was great talent, great energy, and great optimism. For a time, it seemed that Britain might produce a music radically different from the raucous new noises of North America. End of Disc 7